Today's episode kicks off season five of Podclast. I'm Laura Axtell, the host of Podclast, and if you are joining us for the first time, welcome. Podclast is an educational podcast with the mission of exploring topics from a variety of perspectives with practical solutions for improving teaching and learning. If you have listened to previous episodes, thank you for joining us again. We hope that you have found value in the amazing guests who shared their expertise and experience in seasons one through four. I'm excited to tell you about some new things this season. Podcasts can now be found on Spotify, as well as the podcast app, iTunes, YouTube, and wherever you enjoy listening. I've got another announcement that's coming up at the end of today's episode, so stay tuned. Podcast is sponsored by Reading Horizons, a dynamic structured literacy program that offers a foundational reading curriculum that can be provided in person, remotely, and through instructional software. Need resources to provide high-quality reading instruction during COVID and beyond? For more information, visit readinghorizons.com. And now let's join the episode. So to get Season 5 started, our guest today is Stacy Hurst. Like many in the field of education, her career path has been less of a path and more of a journey. She will share that journey with us and her focus on some of the relevant topics that impact teachers, students, and parents. Thanks for joining us to kick off season five, Stacy. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So could you tell us a little bit about that journey? Sure. Well, I think a lot of it started out just like maybe most of us in education. And from the time I was really little, I knew I wanted to be a teacher. I know lots of people play teacher in school and at home, you know, with their little brothers and sisters and their stuffed animals and whatever students they can amass. <laughs> but I remember. Um, just always thinking that it was not, um, what do I want to be when I grow up? It was more, you know, when I'm a teacher, I just thought it was just like a natural stage of development, I guess. <laughs> you go through childhood and then at some point you become a teacher. So I did go to college and I studied education. That was my, one of my first majors. And then I took a little bit of a circuitous route to graduation and I, pivoted in the middle of my education and got a sociology degree, but reading was always my minor or always. And so I was always taking classes on how to teach reading, reading instruction. So by the time I did graduate with my education degree, I had a reading endorsement. Then I actually entered the school setting in more of the behavior realm. So I was the behavior interventionist in a school for, I think I did that for three years before I started teaching in the classroom. And that was a really interesting and valuable experience for me because it was in the special ed realm and my degree was not in special ed. So yeah, it was really valuable for me. Then I taught first grade, which really was my sweet spot because it was, uh, you know, all the child development that I had kind of the the merging of those two things, um, reading development and child development. First grade is a critical year for all of that. So I taught first grade and then I became the literacy coach. And I did that for a total of 15 years. And then I had an opportunity that is unique, I think, in most people's journey. <laughs> and that is uh, that I had an opportunity to work for a company writing curriculum and uh, that was focusing on phonics instruction specifically. It was a program that we had used in our school in all three tiers of instruction. So I had used it in my classroom and then coached teachers in using it. It was very 
versed in the method. And so I have been doing that for about 10 years. And then I recently accepted a job as a professor at a university here in Utah, and I will be teaching pre-service teachers. And so I'm, I'm really excited for that. Once again, all of my interests are merging into one. So I am looking forward to that. Well, during your route, obviously, getting your graduate degree, you did a thesis. So could we start by talking a little bit about the research that you did for your thesis? What was your topic? What was the purpose of your study? Yeah, which I should start out by saying I am a big fan of research. I was so indecisive originally about what I was going to do. And I went back and forth between spelling instruction and and what was most effective there. And maybe I should do research on oral reading versus silent reading. (laughs) Anyway, it took me a few years to land on it. But always in the back of my mind was that information about teacher prep. Because in my experience, just like most other people, I'm sure, who are listening to this, who have been in the classroom, uh, there came a point early on in my first year of teaching first grade what I really realized I had not been prepared to teach reading. In all of the reading classes that I had taken with all of my well-meaning professors who had a, you know, a great impact on my practice. And so I focused on teacher preparation. And obviously, many of us are familiar with researchers who had gone before, clearly done a lot of that. So Louisa Motes being one of the first. And I read all that I could on it and replicated similar studies. So I was measuring teacher knowledge. So, you know, obviously a really relevant issue these days with the current focus on improving reading instruction and teacher preparation. Could you discuss your research questions and what the findings were? Sure. Well, I had, again, narrowing, (laughs) narrowing those questions were hard, too. But I did have, uh, you know, multiple questions. So in general, I was surveying pre-service and in-service teachers. I was really curious based on the fact that I had graduated right before the National Reading Panel published their meta-analysis by the time I conducted my research, which was 2014. That had been published for almost 15 years. And so I was curious to know if that information was having an impact on what teachers knew and what their instruction looked like. So I narrowed my questions. I wanted to know that. Are teachers demonstrating a sufficient knowledge base for teaching reading, reflecting those things that research has said? Um, And then I also was very interested in comparing what in-service teachers know compared to pre-service teachers. And at that time, clearly I was finishing my graduate degree. I was at that stage, but I was also often in those teaching situations where I was teaching pre-service teachers and in-service teachers. So I was curious to see how that knowledge compared. What are the pre-service teachers learning compared to what the in-service teachers know? And then also just wanted to know, you know, the population that I ended up studying, how did they compare to previous studies that had focused on the same thing? Then as secondary questions, and again, there were many, (laughs) I did have to narrow it. I wanted to know if teacher knowledge varied according to years of teaching experience age or educational degree. We always talk about how those things can impact teacher knowledge, but I wanted kind of a more concrete measure. And then um, the other thing that I felt like was becoming more and more obvious 
was that teachers were questioning or starting to question their pre-service education programs, wanting to know if they had adequately prepared them. And this actually comes from personal experience as well. And part of my new role at the company I was in was to train teachers. And I did a lot of trainings across the country and, and sometimes internationally. But in every case, every single training, I still say this, I'm waiting for the day for someone to not come up to me and say, why didn't we learn this in college? And I, you know, I'm not even teaching all the things. I'm focusing specifically on a, a method to teach decoding. And so that was something that was always amazing to me that in every single setting, no matter where, urban or rural or big or small, that that question was being asked. And so I did want to, to ask that question to see if they felt well prepared. And then um, finally, wanting to know if teachers knew what they didn't know, which I think is part of, you know, any learning journey needs to start with realizing what you don't know. And so I wanted to know if it was calibrated with their perceptions or their confidence and ability for teaching reading, because that is also important. Keeping in mind, we want confident teachers who know their stuff and know what to do with that knowledge. So those were my main questions. And then what about the findings? What did, what did your research identify as, you know, responses from teachers? Yeah. So that was really interesting. And, you know, this will tell you how much information there is. And I think, you know, just generally speaking, I'm stepping outside of the realm of education right now, but living in this age, we have so much access to information. And when you conduct a research survey like this, there's so much information, but I think research questions are critical because it narrows your focus. So really, when I got to this point in the research process, I was like a kid in a playground. I, it was There was just so much information, and interpreting it was a really fun <laughs> exercise. So there was a lot of fascinating things, and my study wasn't even that um, robust compared to others, but there was a lot of really insightful data there, too. So to answer my first question, no, teachers were not demonstrating a sufficient knowledge base for teaching reading. One of the interesting things that stood out to me a little bit was that there is a particular question on, that surfaces on most of these surveys, and that is counting the number of phonemes in a word. And the word that's typically highlighted is a word like box. So we have three graphemes or three letters, but there are four sounds in that word. So the, the majority of teachers are not able to identify that that word actually has four phonemes in it because X has two. So um, that's what all of the research showed. The study, my sample size, and I surveyed teachers here in Utah and some teachers in New Jersey for a total of 75 teachers. Some, about 60% of those were in-service teachers and 40% were pre-service teachers getting ready to enter the profession. And that was astoundingly the same. In my particular study, only 3% answered that correctly. And so that was alarming to me with the emphasis that the National Reading Panel had put or highlighted the need for phonological instruction as well as phonics and that maybe we got hung up a little bit on the phonics piece of it because they were identifying the graphemes, of course, but not the phonemes. So that was interesting to me that that hadn't changed over time, 
Um, the other thing was the the percentages. For example, the average percentage of proficiency on the survey was only like 57%. And also um, <laughs> 33% was the average for content knowledge on the survey. That's not acceptable in any profession. So it was a really interesting finding to me. Teachers showed a lot more confidence in content areas like fluency, vocabulary, and comprehension, which would make sense based on the fact that most of our instruction in school started with the meaning-based focus. So yeah, it was that was one interesting finding. The other thing that I thought was really interesting was when I compared studies that had been done, looking at the question of how long teachers had been teaching compared to what they knew. So in a survey that was conducted by another research, set of researchers in 2001, showed that teachers who had been teaching for more than 11 years at that point scored better than teachers with less than 10 years of teaching experience. So generally speaking, I guess we could apply the notion that, you know, the longer you've been doing something, the better you are at it. So keep in mind that was 2001. So in my study, there was actually a slump in scores with teachers who had been teaching for more than 20 years. So keep that in mind that my study was given 15 years later. And so when you think of that time frame, the teachers in that study, you know, would have advanced 10 years beyond that. And there was a slump of scores for um, teachers who had been teaching more than 20 years and a significant increase for teachers who had been teaching more than who had more than 30 years of teaching experience, which would have been the same time frame as those teachers in the first study that scored better. And so as you look at that, you figure, well, it's not exclusive to the number of years they've been teaching then. So what is the difference? Well, when you add the year that they either started teaching or that they were in school learning to read, you realize historically our emphasis on phonics instruction shifted right about the time they would have, some of the, the teachers who scored lower were in school. So it was either they, they were taught to read with um, more whole language approach, approaches or approaches that were not necessarily aligned with what we know today to be the science of reading or they were taught a more balanced or whole approach, whole language approach in their pre-service teaching. And that was the difference. Well, that was my conclusion anyway. <laughs> I guess we could do a little more research to make that more robust of a finding. So it absolutely is the type of instruction that you receive learning to read. And then more importantly, your, the instruction that you receive in your pre-service education. Well, let me ask you about that for a second, though, because couldn't the other factor or another variable be what kind of professional development were you getting once you were in the classroom and did that shift? Yeah. So there, are, I think that's a really important question, too. And this I'm super interested in that because, of, again, all these intersections that I keep talking about, but I really do have the privilege right now to continue to learn. That is my number one thing. If that were a profession, I would get paid to be a learner. <laughs> um, but I, I also think we don't learn in isolation. Learning is not relevant until you have an application for it. And so I know that in the products that I'm helping to inform in my current role, as a chief education officer at a, a reading company. And then also 
in my role as a professor and informing what pre-service teachers know, that's critical because there are two facets to that. I think teacher knowledge is so important for a lot of reasons. I guess I'll come back to that. But also teachers need high quality materials that are aligned with what we know is best practice for teaching students how to read. So they need access to those materials. And one of the findings in the research that I read for my lit review was a study that had been done on a scripted program specifically. And it was, they were measuring teacher knowledge after using a scripted program. And as it turns out, their students did score, they did fare well after being taught with the program compared to before. Um, not maybe significantly, not the ooh-ah that we would hope for. <laughs> but, um, and this is only after one year of implementation. But the teacher knowledge did not move up on the scale too much. So the assumption was, and rightfully so, that some as something as highly scaffolded as a script is not enough um, to really end up making a significant enough difference in teaching reading. So I thought that was an interesting finding because we hear a lot about scripted programs and how important of an element that is. Well, as a scaffold, right? So what we know about scaffolding is if you keep it up all the time, <laughs> what's the purpose of it, right? We have to take it away so the building that we're building can stand on its own. So you really do need a balance of quality materials and continued professional development or learning so that teachers now have the ability not just to read from a script accurately and implement a program with fidelity, which I know I just say those words and Anybody, any teacher listening probably cringes a little bit because we love those, some of those phrases we hear a lot. Um, but you know what? Being able to make those decisions in the moment for each child or student that you're working with, not just following the script, but knowing how to adequately and expertly address the unique needs of each reader profile. We're going to take a short break to acknowledge Reading Horizons, the sponsor of PodClast. Reading Horizons empowers teachers by providing training and tools to deliver K-12 foundational reading programs for students in all three tiers, special education and English language learners. Let's hear from one of those teachers. This is Julie, a teacher in Alabama, and she said, I have been teaching language arts for 16 years, and the Reading Horizons program is by far the most successful program I have used to teach students to read. I teach primarily K to fourth grade and use the Reading Horizons decodable readers with my students. I soon discovered that since the skills the students learn through the progression of explicit instruction are integrated into the books, the children are much more successful with reading. I see their confidence building, and I'm hearing them say that reading is their favorite thing to do now. Thanks, Julie, for sharing that success story. To learn more, visit readinghorizons.com. So could you talk a little bit? I just want to make sure we don't miss this point. So yeah. are you saying scripted programs? Because there are people that oppose scripted programs. So are scripted programs not, are there no benefits to having scripted programs? Or what is required for that to be a benefit? Well, I think nobody would argue with the fact that you should not buy any program and just be expected to implement it out of the box without training. And And by that, I mean knowing the context of the program, what went into designing it? Is it truly aligned with the science? 
you know, is there research to back its efficacy, all of those things. So yeah, a scripted program has a lot of value in my opinion. And some of that is dependent on a teacher's ability (laughs) to comprehend that script, right? The hope is with any scripted program that again, that it is a solid program aligned with what we know works for teaching reading, aligned with the science that we've, we've learned so much about in the last few years. And really that's always been there, but also that they're continuing to understand that so that at some point in the particular program that, you know, I have been able to influence and a lot of teachers who use this particular method in the manuals, we actually scaffold it differently. We will say, you know, you have this script, you can follow that. You can choose to follow the script word for word. If you have a substitute, you're not going to miss too much if you just have them read it. But then we also, in every lesson, point out, this is the synopsis. Once you know this method well enough, that script is not required. And so it is an important scaffold until teachers know either the method or know enough about literacy instruction to go off script, so to speak, expertly, and not wreck the bus, to speak metaphorically. So yeah, to your question, I think there's absolutely a place for a script. And I do think it's a a safe and essential place to start. I understand people's reservations about a script. I've had them myself. But I do look at them as a tool. And again, the important thing is that we're also informing what teachers know. Well, and I've heard you say that teaching is both an art and a science, and the science is in the script or in the method. Yep. And I, I, I often think about these brand new teachers, their first year, and there's so much, there's such a steep learning curve with teaching. And then to be implementing typically multiple programs, right. how valuable it would be to be able to follow something that you knew was going to provide that that science in the way that it needed to be provided. Absolutely. Very solid point. And I do, I looked at Basil's the same way when I was a literacy coach and, you know, having brand new teachers that were still provisional as we called them. I was very clear about that. If I come into your room in three years and you are still relying on this Basil, we will spend a lot of time together (laughs) because again, yeah, there's a lot on a first year teacher's plate. And that art, to your point, the science is there. Thank heavens. We need to do a better job of translating it for pre-service and in-service teachers, but it's there. The art part comes in implementing it expertly, right? So you can only do that with application. So this is all very connected to what you'll be doing in higher ed as a professor of pre-service teachers. So how do you see your role in light of your experience as both an educator and also as someone who is developing reading content? Well, that's what I think is is really unique, right? Like we look for mentors or role models, and I have many, but it is a really unique combination. And my passion <laughs> is in being able to apply to both settings, to increase teacher knowledge and improve what we're offering them in the way of curriculum. And so I think it really, it does relate. I think one of the reasons I'm so excited to begin, I mean, and I am beginning that journey, so uh, I'm sure I'll take you along with me. But the, the one thing I get so excited about, one thing I did find in my research was that most, when asking the question if they felt like their pre-service programs had prepared them well to teach reading, and 
that also interestingly, Laura, was the number of years that they had been teaching informed how they answered that question. If they were within the first five years of teaching, they were more likely to be more positive about that. Yes, I feel well prepared. Teachers beyond five years, however, had a different thought about that. And so I think one of the things, though, that came out of the research was that in another study, they had specifically asked the question, did you see your college professors modeling the same things they were requiring, you know, telling you were best practices in the classroom? The resounding response was no. It really, you know, as much as we know about teaching and learning and keeping students engaged, a lot of the delivery was still the lecture format. Let me tell you what to do and show you a video of someone doing it. But the professors themselves were not modeling those very things they were teaching their students. And a lot of schools of education still don't have reading clinics or anything like that. So the first time that really a teacher is expected to be able to work and basically practice on students is when they get into student teaching or when they're hired as a teacher. Oh my gosh. Yes. And you know what, your background, you, cause you have a background in special education. I think this is a scale issue too. We do throw them into an, in, in, I'm talking about general ed teachers. We do throw them into a classroom that, whose, you know, numbers are getting bigger and bigger and things might change in this unique time period. But, but the fact of the matter is we expect them to differentiate for 25 to 30 students if they haven't had that in-depth experience with one student and then scale it to a group of students, a small group of students, and then a larger group. Like there are so many ways we, I feel like we can improve that. And you're right. They need literacy labs. They need places to apply and adjust. <laughs> That's how we learn. With, with that professor, as you mentioned, yes. who's showing them how to do that yeah. appropriately. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot, oftentimes, too, there's so much power in observing other educators, regardless of where you are. I learn a lot from watching new teachers. But I think that a big thing that comes out of any observation you do is there's a lot of maybe apprehension going into that, right? Because we teach in our classrooms and we don't see what our colleagues are often doing. And then we think, oh, I'm going to go into their classroom and I'm going to see these amazing things and I'm going to feel less than. But the majority of the time, don't we walk away think feeling empowered by that observation? More of a, we've elevated the profession. I can do that. I do this well and I can do this well. And it, it really has that effect. So how much more important is that for pre-service teachers in their level of confidence in teaching reading to have that experience before they enter the classroom and they're fully responsible <laughs> for that class? So here's a question for you going into teaching pre-service teachers in this current climate when schools may not even know what they're going to do or exactly how they're going to do it in the fall. So if you had to focus on a couple of goals for what you want to accomplish with your in-service teachers, the students who are in your class, what do you want to focus on this year? Uh, that is a fantastic question. My main focus will be on helping them to know what they need to know to teach reading. And that was another thing in my research and the, and the research I found. Teachers don't know what they don't know. So they end up feeling confident and that is not the best place to learn, right? I mean, I'm I'm more 
able to learn things when I'm feeling humble about what I don't know <laughs> and curious. So I think those are the two things. I think I, I have the responsibility to teach them what the science is and then provide them with very guided and supportive settings to apply that and to practice it. So this is an interesting time to your point, but here's what I, at least right now in this part of my journey, <laughs> this is what I really feel strongly about. The principles are there. The elements are there. The way that you end up instructing it, we may need to pivot a little bit. We may need to be a little bit more open to new technologies, frankly. And I think we can capitalize on that. So my real goal will be to teach them the science and make settings, help create an environment where they can apply the science and foster curiosity about that. That's where true learning happens. And so if we have those things in place, we know what we need to know, and we have a, an environment that supports that knowledge and, and application, and we're curious about it, you can see that even though we are really in a unique spot right now, historically with COVID, we, that all of those things combined can help us innovate in ways we'd never thought to do. And I think we'll learn a lot. We'll learn a lot. So my goal are those things, teach them the science, create the best environment that I can for learning and application, and then help foster curiosity for each of them so they can continue to learn and apply. That's awesome. Thank you for all of that information. Really helpful. I think this leads kind of perfectly to the new format for pod class that I mentioned at the beginning. So we're excited to announce that Stacy is going to be co-hosting podcast starting the season with her own episodes. And I'll continue to have conversations around a range of educational topics with experts, educators, and parents with some great guests joining us for three, three episodes a season. And Stacy, can you talk about your vision for the podcast episodes you're going to be doing? Yeah. First of all, I will start by saying I am certain that no one on this planet is more excited than I am about this. So I, I'm really happy to participate in such a well-established and, and helpful podcast. But I think my focus will be to continue to learn from the guests that you have and then focusing on that gap that we have between science and practice, right? Research and practice, which I think if anything, my research just really made that more abysmal to me because we have had literally decades of science. Even when you consider that the national reading panel, it's almost in one, some ways it's old news, right? I mean, it was published in 2001, 2000, a long time, 20 years ago. And we are still not seeing application based on that meta-analysis. And we've had 20 years of research since then that just uh, validates all of that and adds to it. So we do have this abysmal gap. And I, that's, that will be my focus, the guests that we have on and the topics that we cover, and, and to be a little more responsive in the moment as well, because we have to, we're focusing on application to close the gap between research and practice. And really, hopefully, um, you know, translate that science in a way that will, will impact the education system that will help to impact that in ways that we haven't seen yet. And isn't that the goal? 
That is the goal. Well, thank you so much. We're excited to have you joining us this season. Thank you. I'm really, like I said, I'm really excited to be joining. Thanks for joining us to kick off season five. Stacy and I will be back for some great episodes that we think you'll find really relevant to all that is happening in education. Stay safe.